Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, and you're listening to Global Caveat. This is our last episode of 2020, and I've been reflecting a lot, Diana, and we're coming up on two years since we've been doing this podcast. Two years is that doesn't feel like two years. Um, it feels like five thousand years, but twenty twenty feels like seven. You know, it was a long time. We're still in um, March, technically. Yeah, so. um, but yeah, um, and it's it's so exciting and so weird to think about. Um, and you know, I'm really thankful for all of our listeners and supporters for helping us really get to here and still moving forward. You know, we're in our third season, which I think is just amazing since it started out just as an idea. It really did. Yeah. And I still remember the conversation when we were trying to come up with the name for the podcast. Um, yeah. So it's really great to be here. And, you know, to our listeners, if you've been listening since we started or if you joined within the last month or so, regardless, we're so thankful you're here. Um, and we hope to continue producing episodes so that you can learn more with us. And to help us keep producing and making episodes, we could really use your support. Or my last wish of 2020 going into 2021 <laughs> rather is that you leave us some reviews and share us with your friends but only five-star reviews because that's how we can get um <laughs> you know sponsored um so anything else you can send us a dm or an email mm-hmm. and if i had to throw in another wish and if you're listening and you have some more coins to spend this holiday season you can join our patreon your dollars continue to support our production and transcription and some, you know, Global Caveat has grown. So we also do classes now, which we just did our first class. So it also helps pay for our educators. Yes, we currently pay for everything out of our pockets. So that's right. cool. Pocket. <laughs> Woo. Um, so you can find us on Patreon, you know, all social media platforms. And also you can check out our website at globalcaveat.com. Um, yeah, but enough about us. Should we talk about what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, let's get to it. So today we have an exciting guest, Dr. Abram Wagner. He is going to talk about vaccine hesitancy, which, you know, before we started recording, I was like, I don't really know what it is. So I'm excited to have you here. Um, But a little bit about him. Abram Wagner is a research assistant professor of epidemiology at the University of Michigan. He studies vaccine hesitancy and strategies for introducing new vaccines. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, he has been researching how experiences with the COVID-19 pandemic in Asia and the U.S. are affecting intentions to receive the existing influenza vaccine and a future, well, current, I guess now, uh, COVID-19 vaccine. As a global health researcher, Abram works closely with collaborators in China, Indonesia, Malaysia, and other countries. Abram received his PhD at the University of Michigan and has postdoctoral fellowship at Michigan Medicine and Fudan University in Shanghai, China. I didn't mess that up, right? You didn't mess that up at all. Thank you for that wonderful no. introduction. Yes. So, hi, welcome. I'm so excited to have you Yay. here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first, I guess, what does vaccine hesitancy exactly mean before we get into everything else? Yeah, mm-hmm. so so fortunately, the WHO 
has a working group on vaccine hesitancy called the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunizations. Um, and they've come up with a formal definition of vaccine hesitancy. And it's basically people who purposefully are refusing vaccines or delaying vaccines, even if those vaccines are available. So of course we know that there could be a variety of reasons why people are not getting vaccines. They might not be aware of them, they might not have um, the time or the, the money to pay for them, um, but vaccine hesitancy is, is, is more of a, a larger construct which is looking at do people want the vaccines? Are they, are they confident in vaccines? Do they have large concerns about safety or effectiveness? Um, so that's really what the idea of vaccine hesitancy is getting at. Okay. okay. Follow up on that. So is there a distinguished or nuance, I guess, between people who are knowledgeable about the vaccine or, and are still hesitant versus people who don't really know much about the vaccine and are hesitant? Or does that still fall under the whole vaccine hesitancy umbrella? So I, I think vaccine hesitancy is, it can be a large concept. It includes like this whole spectrum. So certainly there are some people who are very knowledgeable about vaccines and hate them and don't want anything to do with them for themselves or for their children. Um, they're very vocal on social media. You hear them in <laughs> traditional media as well, but they're actually like a really small minority of the population. It's probably like less than like 1% of the population. Um, so what we actually have more of are these, what we'd call fence sitters, which is kind of what you're getting at is maybe these people who like really aren't, don't really know about the vaccines or have like some concerns. Um, and we call them fence sitters because they could kind of be pushed into the direction of getting the vaccine or they could be pushed in the direction of not getting the vaccine. And so I think that's, you know, really what we're trying to target because I, I think that there will be always this minority of individuals since the first vaccine, the smallpox vaccine, there's always been people who've been really hesitant about getting a vaccine. Uh, I don't think, you know, focusing on them is such a good use of our time, but really focusing on these people mm -hmm. in the middle, um, especially people who probably aren't like super aware of different vaccines or um, have some, um, you know, not not as knowledgeable about the vaccine. So I think those are those are, are particularly good target. And the other thing I will say is that it's it's okay to have some concerns about vaccines. I you know I, I don't think that we need to say that like every single vaccine um, on the face of the planet is something that everybody should be getting. And I'm sure as part of this program, we'll go through some issues that there have been with some vaccines. But the whole idea is that uh, maybe there's like a few people who are like super positive about vaccines and will, you know, on their own volition, will go to the doctor and make sure the doctor gives them uh, a jab for whatever vaccine it is. But a lot of people are in this like middle category. And I so I think they're the ones who are interesting to study and to learn about. Sure. And Abram, I do want to early on in the episode kind of parse out a little bit about those people you called fence sitters. Um, and so there's been a lot of conversation already about why people may be hesitant or questioning vaccines. Um, but there's also historical context of certain communities who have been institutionally very um, taken advantage of, you know, and um, particularly communities of color who don't trust um, and have been victims of research institutions, which also plays into that. And so I guess for the purpose of this episode, I do want to distinguish what sorts of populations you focus on. And um, you are a global health researcher, so I'm guessing it is a little bit more 
zoomed out in that sense. Um, so yeah, let's kind of yeah, let's let's talk about that because hesitancy is it's there's different characteristics in different communities, and this is something that definitely is something that I'm um, trying to study now and in the future. But I would say that uh, within the United States. Uh, what vaccine hesitancy looks like in, for instance, a more affluent white population would be different than in uh, the black population. So there's been a number of surveys, for instance, on um, you know uptake of uh, COVID-19 vaccine. And this is like hypothetical, at least at the time of these surveys, but it, very similar patterns to kind of seasonal influenza vaccine uptake. And what we see is that there is lower uptake in uh, Black American population compared to a white American population. And when we look at other groups like um, Hispanic Americans or Asian Americans, generally they're relatively close to what um, the non-Hispanic white population is like. But uh, so it seems kind of the outlier there is the Black American population. And I think what I've seen in my my own research is that the the reasons for vaccine hesitancy are are different different in these groups. So I would say in like the more affluent in the in the white population, oftentimes it's more educated, more affluent individuals who are really concerned with this idea of, you know, not having like artificial substances in their body, or, you know, they have this idea of wanting to like boost the immune system through their diet and exercise and not so much through um, like Western medicine. So that's like one group of people who might not be so into vaccines. Uh, but as you were alluding to, um, what might be happening in the Black American population is it, is different. Um, and there are historical reasons, of course, with Black populations being used and uh, not being properly informed about research in the past. But of course, there's there's institutional racism, which is affecting these, these groups to this day. Um, so the experience of a Black woman going into a medical visit could be very different than a white man. Um, and so their experiences with medical providers to this day are very different. Uh, and as a result, there is... Uh, there can be some distrust in this community. But it's I, from what we've seen, it's not so much tied to this idea of wanting to um, be like holistic or uh, be like natural in your life. It's mostly with dis distrust of the establishment, be that the government or the medical providers. And often it's, it's well-founded distrust of them given their um, own lived experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. So... Again, in the U.S. specific context, then, I mean, that makes it hard to do something like mass vaccinations when all mm. these different groups have different reasons for not wanting to seek getting a vaccine or they're hesitant about it. So what does it look like to do mass information distribution in a way that speaks to all these different reasons? Yeah, so certainly um, targeted communications for different groups is important, but I will say that um, as the vaccine was being developed and as they were issuing these early press releases and as I was looking at them, I could definitely see that they weren't really running this by like health psychologists or people with expertise in communications. Um, and I think we can all point to examples of like how like the Pfizer vaccine trial kind of flubbed their like vaccine effectiveness and then AstraZeneca like had all this weird stuff with like how effective their vaccine was. 
Um, but I think in in more recent days, as the vaccine has actually rolled out in community in communities, um, we've seen uh, so some good communications come through. For instance, in New York City, I believe the the first person vaccinated was this female black nurse, and she was vaccinated by uh, another female black vaccination provider. So I think there was there was this idea that we really want to highlight uh, minority communities because, as we know, they're the ones who've been affected the most by uh, the pandemic. And so you know we want we want the allocation of vaccines to to target these um, groups from like a justice and from an equity perspective. Uh, so I, I think kind of messages like that or, or visuals where people can see uh, that somebody's getting vaccinated and that it's a positive experience is is important. I will say though that, um, you know, from all we know, the first dose is the one which doesn't hurt. It's the second dose, which is the mm-hmm. one which is going to mm-hmm. have severe effects. So I, I am concerned at, you know, like in three or four weeks when people are getting the the second dose, uh, what's, what's going to be kind of the messages surrounding that? Because we will get more people who have um, side effects. Um, and we have to realize that um, that's expected for this vaccine. So that's, that's, you know, something for us to prepare. And I think media has been, um, has been honest with this. Like, certainly you don't want to cover up like what um, kind of side effects you will get, because then that can make people suspicious when they actually get it. Um, But I mean, your question's a good one. It's, it's hard though. Like, how do you do outreach to all these different communities? At least at this point in time, we're just doing to the healthcare workers. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very small group of individuals, but when we actually start rolling out the vaccine to the larger population, I think it'll become much more difficult. Sure. My, my partner actually just scheduled his uh, COVID vaccine today. So that made me really happy. Um, yeah, I, I, we just got a survey at the University of Michigan, which was, um, it had to do with prioritization of who gets the vaccine. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm not a frontline healthcare worker. I don't need to go into work. So I, for my answers, I'm sure I'm, you know, low to lowest uh, <laughs> in priority. Yeah, you know, I'll get it in like June next year, which is totally fine. You know, I want other people <laughs> yeah. to get it first. But it was exciting getting yeah. that questionnaire, which is like, ooh, I'm, we'll be getting a vaccine at some point in time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so we, we talked about the U.S., but you've worked globally. So let's kind of, you know, take a look at the globe a little bit and talk about yeah. what vaccine hesitancy looks like outside yeah. of the U.S. I, I This is something which I'm very, very interested in. So, um, again, my research is predominantly focused in um, Asia, specifically China. But uh, there's been some really good research, some really good surveys, which have been um, distributed based out of the Vaccine Confidence Project, which is headed by Heidi Larson in um, the United Kingdom. And so from looking at her studies, what we see globally when we look at patterns of vaccine hesitancy, it seems to be particularly problematic in Eastern Europe and some places in East Asia. You know, things like vaccine hesitancy just don't seem to be so much of an issue in Africa and, you know, not as much in South America. And there are, you know, some countries like in Europe, like France and Italy seem to be particularly skeptic about vaccines. But yeah, so Eastern Europe seems to be um, kind of like a hotspot of vaccine hesitancy. Uh, but in my in my own research, it's it's interesting to look at what are the patterns of vaccine hesitancy across different countries and like what specifically are people hesitant about? Because, you know, you can kind of come up with overall measures of vaccine hesitancy or dive into like specific concerns that people have. And one thing that I find interesting, um, looking at places like mainland China or Taiwan, 
or Malaysia, there's there's a lot of concerns about vaccine safety and the side effects of mm. um, of vaccines. Not to say that it isn't a concern in other places, but at least compared to the United States, it's, it's more of a concern in those locations. But in the United States, there's like more concern about whether vaccines are beneficial, period. So it's not even like getting to the point of mm. like, you know, some vaccines might be okay and some might be like have more side effects. But in the United States, there's just a larger proportion of people who just like are, they have a bit more suspicion about whether vaccines are effective or whether they're important for themselves or mm. for, um, you know, the community at large. So kind of so, like flu vaccine every year where they're like, I mean, I, I haven't gotten in the last three years and I never got the flu. So is it really I that mean, helpful? Like, I just feel like of- conspiracy theories are just wild. I've oh, like yeah. recently went down Reddit holes of like the birds being not real in America. So I can oh, imagine it's, it's, that America, <laughs> that America oh, would be the ones to be like, should we even have vaccines? Are they microchips? Is it 5G in my body? Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, I mean, you really can like go down a rabbit hole for yeah. this. And I, I mean, in my mind though, um, certainly th- that's one of the downsides of social media is that you click and you can see a lot of people reporting this. And then you can be really mm-hmm. concerned that like, oh my gosh, are there all these people who think they're going to get microchipped with the vaccine? But um, if you know, you look at larger surveys of like the general population, mm-hmm. it's certainly a lower percentage of people who are actually believing that. But the problem is that like maybe through social media and, you know, it just becomes this echo chamber of seeing similar information that it it, it could spread really rapidly so um yeah i i hear you it's it's kind of disappointing to see all that stuff coming i mean that one percent is very loud (laughs) it's very loud and it could it could the you know now i say less than one percent but you know what if that becomes five percent or ten percent um and what we know from um herd immunity uh is that for different vaccines, we need to have a certain proportion of the population vaccinated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so something that's really communicable, like um, whooping cough or measles, we probably need like 90 or 95% of the population vaccinated. COVID luckily isn't like as communicable, but we'd still probably need about 60 or 70% of the population vaccinated. But what population are you talking about? Because are we talking about the United States as a whole? Are we talking about a state? Are we talking about a county? Are we talking about an individual zip code? And in reality, like in a non-pandemic era, we are, you know, like walking around a lot. Like we are, like our our exposures are not within the country as a whole. It's really mm-hmm. like what's happening in your neighborhood. So, um, and we know that individuals who are unvaccinated tend to be closer to individuals, other individuals who are unvaccinated. So these like neighborhoods, um, and you know these zip codes can be could be hotspots of um, transmission even after like a state as a whole or the country as a whole has mm-hmm. a relatively high uptake of vaccine. Now, when you say that there are certain areas around the globe, so for example, the, like Eastern Europe and you know maybe parts of Asia that are more vaccine hesitant for whatever reason. Um, I actually was going to ask you about the Eastern Europe one because I saw an Economist article that talked about that. They were like, you might not think so, but they're pretty, um, you know, hesitant or resistant to taking vaccines. I guess what's the trend here? What are some correlations that we see like in terms of, I don't know, country GDP or government, um, the types of policies, healthcare system? Yeah. So um, generally what we see on a country level is that with a lower levels of 
income, like GDP per capita or however you want to measure income. With lower levels of income, there's actually higher confidence in vaccines. There's less hesitancy about vaccines. Um, and then with higher income levels, there is more hesitancy. But then the weird thing is like within a country, generally, actually, people with higher income are less hesitant. So it's kind of, you know, at what level are you looking at? Are you looking at like a mm. country by country level mm. or like within a country? But I mean, I, the Eastern Europe one is is interesting because of course, like under communism, there was like very rigid mm. um, vaccination systems. There were high levels of vaccination coverage. Uh, I think what happened after the dissolution of like the USSR and other um, communist governments in Eastern Europe is there was sort of like this mistrust in the government. There's just like this generalized mistrust in the government. And one thing that you saw was that there was like this rapid drop in vaccination coverage. And one of the vaccines um, that there was a drop in coverage for was DTP or diphtheria tetanus pertussis, which is, you know, a very commonly given vaccine um, in the United States at like two, four, six months for infants. And we regularly get these tetanus boosters throughout our lives. But um, in Eastern Europe in the 90s, there was just like this huge outbreak of diphtheria, which like we don't hear anything about. That's like, that sounds like something from like the 1800s or the early 1900s. <laughs> but um, because of uh, low vaccination coverage, there was just like this huge outbreak in um, Eastern Europe. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it, it kind of has, I would say there, the change in the political system probably uh, coincided with just like a generalized distrust in the government and maybe people having like more political freedom to be mm -hmm. talking about certain things. Um, and that just led to, among other things, uh, lower uptake of vaccines. But certainly this is something like country this, this is different country by country. And I think like Japan yeah. is a really interesting example where I think in general people, uh, you know, I'm not a political scientist, but my understanding is that in Japan, there is like, you know, somewhat high trust in the government. There's relatively high vaccine hesitancy. And um, mm -hmm. one of the interesting things in Japan is it seems like every other decade, there's this one vaccine which there's some sort of safety or perceived safety issues. So it's removed off their list of vaccines, which is given to children. And as a result, there can be these huge outbreaks of disease. So for instance, in the mid 1970s, there were some reports of um, safety incidents after, after DTP vaccine vaccines were administered. So then that was discontinued in the population. And again, like thousands of children ended up getting whooping cough in the years oh, that followed. Wow. Um, since then, they like have reintroduced a protest vaccine. But like similar things happened in the 90s with a measles vaccine. And more recently, the HPV vaccine has shifted from being recommended to um, just like not having any recommendations. So um, hmm. vaccination coverage of that has dropped a lot. I think, you know, that's that's an example of a situation where, you know, because the government hasn't strongly pushed for vaccines, then uptake of certain vaccines has just, has just fallen. And as, as a result, like, you know, it's unfortunate. There's been, you know, thousands of people who have gotten preventable illness. There's been dozens of children who've died of various diseases. And certainly I think that there's already this thought that um, within the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be a huge number of cervical cancer cases in Japan relative to other countries just oh, as a wow. result of low uptake of the HPV hmm. vaccine. Yeah. And the 
you know, because with vaccines, it's not something that you see like that, something like that you don't see in the next year, something you have to observe, like you said, 10, maybe 15, 20 years from now. So that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that that was. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with public health is that like, if it functions really well, then things are things are great. You know, like if we Mm -hmm. don't have outbreaks of foodborne illness, if our tap water is working well, if our sewage systems are good, if vaccination programs are working correctly, then everything is fine. And then the general population just doesn't think that public health really matters because, you know, (laughs) things things are great. And then, you know, then funding for public health can decrease. um, And then kind of there can be cracks in the system, but they don't have effects right away. The consequences often come years later, and it can be difficult to tie them. It can be difficult to talk about them, about these consequences and why they happened to the the general population. Aram, are you saying that we're underappreciated? We are so (laughs) underappreciated. So (laughs) more funding to all of us. Yeah, I I think that's the the takeaway message. We can just end it there. I mean, honestly. Pretty much. (laughs) Funny. Um, What about China? Because you said you did your work in China. And I guess with COVID, um, having it starting in Wuhan, and I know China is huge. um, So I'm sure there's a lot of variety in mainland China as well. And then there's Taiwan who has been doing wonderfully in managing COVID. So yeah, what what do you imagine? What's going um, on? Yeah. So one thing that I'm, so first off, I'll state that one thing that I'm really concerned about is that after this epidemic, there will be a huge increase in vaccine hesitancy. Um, why do I think that? One is that that's what happened after the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. What happened was early on in the pandemic, everybody wanted an H1N1 vaccine. But if you remember, it took like a few months for us to develop a vaccine, uh, even for like a an influenza vaccine where we already had the platform available. But, you know, it, it takes a while to develop a vaccine. But by the time that the vaccine became available, there were fewer and fewer people who actually wanted it. I think it ended up like in the United States, maybe like 20% of people got the, the H1N1 vaccine. That's um, it? Yeah, I mean, it varied place by place, but not a lot of people got it. And um, not a lot of surveys were actually looking at this, but one survey in France, which did do a study on vaccine hesitancy before and after the pandemic, found that there was this huge, I think it was like a three or four fold increase in the number of people who were vaccine hesitant before that uh, pandemic Mm. versus after. So I'm not exactly sure why that was the case that, you know, Mm. I'm trying to explore in my current recent research why <laughs> that actually could happen. And maybe it won't happen with the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think one of the things that happened was that during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic, early on, people just thought this was really serious. They were, you know, it was this this nebulous disease. Um, it seemed scary. But as time went on, there was this sort of um, decrease in risk perceptions. And so people were less and less scared of the vex or of the disease. And so I think that kind of ricocheted into people just like not liking, not wanting the H1N1 vaccine. And then I think in general, one thing I will say is that like people just don't really have individual thoughts about a vaccine. Like if you don't like one vaccine, you won't like all the vaccines. Certainly there can be like, you know, context specifics. Um, but I think what happened with the H1N1 pandemic, at least in this this study in France, is that people just became, they just didn't think the H1N1 vaccine was important, so then they just didn't think vaccines in general were important. 
or at least that's what happened with certain people. So I'm trying to study that. And I, I first started doing studies in um, China. I worked with some collaborators in February and um, early March to develop some surveys. And of course, at that time, um, we knew of the of um, COVID-19 spreading in China, but it was you know, kind of less of an issue here in the United States. The tables have kind of turned where, um, <laughs> at least from what we can see from publicly reported data, it is uh, much less of an issue in China than it has been in the United States and some other countries. And sure, you can doubt those official sources of data, but I think on the ground experiences in China are much different than they are here in the United States. So one thing I was interested in is like, what are people's experiences in this pandemic? Um, do they have a personal experience? Um, and by that, I mean like, did they get a COVID-19 diagnosis themselves? Uh, do they know of a friend or family member who's had a COVID-19 diagnosis? And then have they seen like faces of individuals who've had COVID-19 in the media, either traditional media or social media? So I asked them those questions. And then I also asked, do, do you think those, those cases were severe or not? Like if they, if they had that kind of experience. So what we see, um, you know, across different countries is that the United States has, at least in the surveys that I've done, there are a lot of people in the United States who've had like a personal experience with COVID-19 or who've had a friend or family member who's had COVID-19. Um, and it's actually much less so in places like China or Taiwan, which mm. have had like pretty robust public health responses. So of course, like as an individual, the average Chinese or Taiwanese person will just like not have that, that like personal connection to somebody who's had um, COVID-19. However, it seems that actually in these countries, um, like China or Taiwan, they're better in the media at pointing out COVID-19 cases. I think here in the United States, we, we hear about COVID-19 all the time mm -hmm. in the media, but at least like when I turn on the news, it's like this graph of rapidly increasing cases or this like map of the United States where every state is red and it's like, right. ICU beds are full, but there's not really the... Um, like the personal touch, like the face. And mm -hmm. if we know anything from psychology, people are much better at remembering like a face of an individual, even through the TV, than they are at remembering a graph. And, you know, like that, that gist or that like gut feeling that you get after seeing a case is very different than actually like hearing, oh, there's like a thousand cases of COVID-19. Right. Like, what does that mean? Um, so I think play, some some places like um, in Eastern Asia, like China or Taiwan, are much, at least from my surveys, have seemed to be much better in their media at like inculcating a sense of like, what does it actually mean to be a COVID-19 case versus in the United States? Um, and we mm -hmm. and I have seen that, you know, people's ex these experiences do strongly associate with whether they'd want to get a COVID-19 vaccine or not. Um, so... I think that's kind of my my warning message from my um, research is that it's really important how we talk about a disease um, in the population, especially since people might not have like a direct personal experience sure. with the disease. And what about, um, now I'm wondering, because, you know, even with behaviors and reducing risk among different individuals and communities have been different, you know, so some people have been very strict about not going outside, um, really limiting going out in public spaces or grocery shopping, 
And then some on the other end of the spectrum who are like, I don't care, F masks, I'm going to do whatever I want. And then yeah. everywhere in between. So what do you think would happen be- with people on those different ends, uh, that end of the spectrum? Um, sorry, let me rephrase that. People who are on different parts of that spectrum and how their attitudes would look like with vaccine hesitancy. It's all, it's all very related. So um, studies which have looked at like mask wearing and social distancing behaviors and vaccination intention have found that, you know, the people who are more rigid about wearing um, masks and who limit going to public gatherings, these are the people who are also more likely to want to get the vaccine. So it's a bit weird because you'd think maybe there could be a group of people who are like, I just don't want to socially distance, but I want to protect myself. So I'll want to get a vaccine instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's it's not the case. You know, people's um, kind of these protective health behaviors all hang together. Uh, and may, that might not be the case for every individual, but at least on a population level, these um, hang together. And I think, you know, it, it's great. I like to see people are social distancing. I like to see people wearing masks. I want to see people who are um, wanting to get a vaccine. But that these things are so highly correlated also makes me worried about what the distribution of vaccines will actually look like if it's so highly related to other characteristics. Um, And maybe this also speaks to the larger politicization of public health in the last few years, because, I mean, I haven't been alive that long, but my understanding is that, like, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there there was wide public support for public health and especially vaccination programs. And maybe there's some political differences with like how much funding you want for certain things. But like in general, people, you know, liked vaccines regardless of their political affiliation. But I think we've seen some like changes with that in recent years. And especially with the politicization of like wearing masks um, and like going out and things like that. I Unfortunately, I think that's seeping into whether people would want to get a COVID-19 vaccine or not. Hmm. There's a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, to ask something, I am just like uh-huh. digesting. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Abram, you're, you're throwing a lot of well, great information. I, I, I will say that one thing that um, we had we had kind of emailed back and forth about before doing this interview was this um, idea of are there differences in attitudes across different vaccines? And I kind of wanted to talk about yeah. that a bit yeah. because, um, you know, what I had found was, at least in my research, is, you know, if people don't like one vaccine, they don't like another. Um, mm-hmm. Part of my doctoral dissertation was looking, was comparing what Chinese parents thought of a measles vaccine versus a pneumococcal vaccine. And it was very similar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people who liked one, liked the other. If you liked one, there was the same reason for why you liked the other. So kind of their their conception of these vaccines was the same. And more recently with the COVID-19 vaccine, we were looking at, you know, what makes people not want to get a COVID-19 vaccine and um, are people vaccine hesitant? And again, similar patterns. Like if you were vaccine hesitant, we found, for instance, there was this like uh, socioeconomic gradient of people um, who are more affluent were less likely to be uh, vaccine hesitant. Similarly, people who were more affluent were less likely to reject a COVID-19 vaccine. But um, I, and, and I think we can see this also, um, you know, in, in the history of some vaccines in more recent years. So for instance, like uh, a few years ago, there was this dengue vaccine, which was, um, which was developed and um, which was um, given out to different countries. And one of the first countries to have a rollout of this vaccine called Dengbaxia was uh, the Philippines. 
But what they found were that there were pretty severe side effects of it starting in mm -hmm. about 2017. And part of it was that the vaccine manufacturer didn't do a good job of explaining who should be getting the vaccine. Um, so as a background, dengue is kind of like influenza. There's different strains. You can be infected with multiple ones across your lifetime. So the vaccine really is for people who've already gotten one strain of dengue. Then they're supposed to get the vaccine. And then they're supposed to be protected against like a wide variety of strains. But what was happening is that people were getting vaccinated prior to having any exposure to dengue. Oh, and no. if you mess up the order, then there was something called an antibiotic antibody dependent enhancement of the immune system and you could get like all sorts of problems oh so um there there was reasons why people didn't like this dengue this dengue vaccine mm -hmm. all sorts of problems but what happened wasn't just that oh people didn't want the dengue vaccine anymore what happened is people didn't want other vaccines then um and so for instance uh, measles vaccination coverage decreased really rapidly and then there was these huge outbreaks of measles within the country all because there was this really botched rollout of uh, a dengue vaccine. So I think that speaks to this idea that, you know, we can think about a number of different vaccines and maybe for an individual, like a, you know, a listener might have concerns about one vaccine and not another. So that certainly can be your own personal um, opinion, but on the whole, like on, in the, on a population level, if people don't like one vaccine, they don't like all vaccines. So the problem is that like, if you have a problem in rolling out one vaccine, a new vaccine that could make it so that people don't want existing vaccines and could exacerbate out outbreaks in the country. Oh my gosh, what a huge risk. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem. And that's, you know, what I've been talking about in all of my grant applications recently to, to try to get people to fund me. Um, but so I, I think this, um, you know, how we, how we introduce vaccines is, is really important and not only for that individual vaccine, but for vaccines as a whole. Especially because, you know, with the COVID vaccine, it's two doses. And, you know, with anything that requires follow-up, that's an extra effort on the individual's part. And so, you know, I know there were some concerns about people not getting that second shot. So, yeah, that, yeah, that could be a huge problem. And I, um, I'm worried about that. Uh, we just don't really have efficacy data for one dose. We will soon, like maybe they have somewhat good protection anyway, but um, certainly not it won't be as good as if they have two doses. Uh, yeah, so so pediatricians already know this, that there's this really complicated immunization schedule. It can be really difficult to um, schedule parents to come in at multiple times just to make sure that their kid is fully vaccinated. Uh, but we really don't have that for adult vaccines because, you know, the vaccines that we have, like for, for influenza or for shingles, I guess the pneumonia vaccine is a bit different, but generally you just need to go in once and get mm -hmm. one sure. dose and you don't need to worry about coming in a second time. That's not the case with COVID-19. Um, also, Americans just like aren't great at holding on to medical information. I saw some pictures <laughs> of like a COVID-19 vaccine card, which, you know, you hold on to because it's really important to know when you got vaccinated, but also what vaccine you got because you have to get the same one. Like you need to get right. two doses of Pfizer. You can't get like one dose of Pfizer and one of Moderna or things like that. So mm -hmm. um, it's really important to know and have like a medical record of that. But like, I can't imagine Americans holding on to this vaccination card. I think that goes like straight in the trash, like after you have your first dose. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are electronic um, vaccination registries. Uh, here in Michigan, we have a pretty robust one. I'm hoping that it's going to be used 
um, there's no legal mandate for adult vaccines to be entered into it. Childhood vaccines do need to, vaccination providers need to put childhood vaccines into mm. it. But as of yet, there's not a legal mandate to put adult vaccines into it. But I'm, I'm hoping that if was widely used, then at least the vaccination provider could, could check on this website to see what did an individual previously had. But that's assuming that they like come back for a second visit. So how do you get sure. people <laughs> to actually mm-hmm. come back for a second visit? Mm-hmm. I I think that'll be a huge problem. Yeah. yeah. I'm just trying to think of like the what vaccines I've had that are like on a schedule. The only one I can think of is the HPV one. It's like three doses, right? But I remember when I got that, when I scheduled my first one, my doctor scheduled me the two other appointments. He was like, you have to come yeah. back on this day and this day. And they mm-hmm. scheduled the appointments for me at that time. So yeah, like, so I think the days to come back. Like, yeah, and I think yeah. that'll that will be what will have to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think for a lot of people who are going to be vaccinated at work, like presumably I will at some point in time, you know, the workplace will organize that. But it's 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 more difficult if you're just like driving by and see, mm-hmm. oh, the Walgreens sign said that there's a COVID nineteen vaccine, so I'll get my dose right now. And I think that convenience factor is really important to increase uptake of a vaccine. But mm-hmm. that can increase uptake of the first dose. It doesn't necessarily mean that people will show up for a second dose when there's not like a formal scheduling of it. So I, I'm not exactly sure what the solution is mm-hmm. to that. I think that might have to do just with the point of vaccination, having some system to remind you like by text or, or something to come back for sure. a yeah. second dose. Now, what about vaccines mandatory versus letting people mm-hmm. opt in and out? So for example, Oregon... Last year, we had at Oregon State, we had a meningitis outbreak on college campus. And so it was actually mandatory for students or they had holds on like their registration or their accounts. Um, and there was a lot of different attitudes about that. You know, a lot of people didn't like it. Some people yeah. thought it was fine. COVID looks like it's more of an opt-in situation, even for healthcare workers. Yeah. So first off, um, you know, right now the vaccines have gotten um, an EUA, emergency use authorization. So it's not full FDA approval. And sort of... The difference between those is rather nebulous, but um, I personally don't think there would be a legal mechanism to mandate vaccinations for a vaccine which just has an EUA. I might be wrong, you know, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a politician, but if a vaccine only has an EUA, I just don't see anywhere where there could be some sort of mandatory system. Um, and certainly right now, just given the constricted vaccine supply, like you can't mandate something which is has a constricted supply. I you know, we have such a hodgepodge of um, vaccine mandates state by state for pediatric vaccines. And generally what we mean by mandate is that for a child to go to school, whether it's a daycare or public school or a private school or a charter school, they need to have evidence of certain vaccines. For most states, there are pretty easy ways to waive um, that requirement through like a philosophical or religious exemption. Now, um, for adult vaccines, there really hasn't been any way to mandate them systematically outside of particular institutional settings. And you mentioned like colleges could theoretically mandate their um, students to get vaccinated. Um, Certain workplaces, especially hospitals and healthcare systems, could mandate their healthcare providers to get an influenza vaccine. Personally, I think that after there is full FDA approval, I could see some some settings, some businesses uh, mandating their workers to get vaccinated. I don't think that there will be um, sort of like a political willpower to do that. Um, and part of it is like, what does it mean 
to mandate vaccine. It's very clear for a pediatric vaccination because mandating mm-hmm. means that you get to go to school or not. Um, yeah. But for like an adult vaccination, what does it mean to mandate? Mm-hmm. You know, what? How can you mandate a vaccine for somebody who works from home, or like who has goes to a workplace where the workplace doesn't care whether they get vaccinated or not? Like, because then you'd have to have like a system in place where the workplace is you know, checking up on their records, which we do for childhood vaccines in the United States, but we like, that would be like a huge amount of bureaucracy for most workplaces. So I I don't see it. I also don't necessarily think that would be helpful in the current political environment where people, a lot of people are suspicious about just how quickly the vaccine has been introduced into the population. So adding on that layer of like, it's mandated, um, I think could dissuade more people then make more people get it. I could That's be wrong about that. That's what I was wondering because I was yeah. like, I don't know. We have we have people who are hesitant for a variety of reasons, and so then adding this mandate seems more of a I don't know, kind of a tyrannical move <laughs> to be like you well, have to take this. It's it's different because you know different countries have different ways. So you know I um I I've worked in the past with somebody from the Netherlands, and in the Netherlands they don't have any mandates about vaccination. Uh, however, they have like pretty high acceptance of vaccines. Hmm. But I think in the culture, just the idea of mandating something would turn a lot of people off to it. Uh, versus mm-hmm. here in the United States, where we do have mandates, but then we have like ways to opt out of the mandate. So it's it's kind of like a weird system. I would love to live in a society where kind of like the Netherlands where we wouldn't need to have these legal systems in place, but it just, there would be wide acceptance of the vaccines so that we, there could be herd immunity reached. Unfortunately, we, you know, live in a society where maybe there's people who wouldn't want it, or maybe, maybe these childhood mandates are a way to just like make parents aware that they need to go to the doctor every once in a while, make sure their kid's vaccinated. So I see reasons for them. I also see reasons where there's been studies which have shown that if you tighten the um, mandate rules, vaccination coverage will increase. So um, there can be some positive effects to it for, you know, a, a childhood population. I just think for adults, it just gets really messy really quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, we are near the end of the episode, mm-hmm. I think. So is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to highlight? No, so we've had like a great conversation. So yeah. I want to thank you for that. Um, I think, you know, what I would just want to leave with is that I realize that for many people, they uh, have concerns about the speed of COVID-19 vaccine development. But the reality is by the time that the vaccine will be available for the general population, it will have been assessed for safety and efficacy in tens of thousands of people in these trials. And likely there will have been millions of individuals um, who have been vaccinated, healthcare workers who've been vaccinated. So these, this is a well-vetted product. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just been able to be developed very quickly because of the attention that has been placed on it. Certainly I, you know, as soon as this vaccine is available to my sort of risk group, I will want to be first in line for it. And I hope that for the listeners of this and for the general population as a whole, you know, when they're able to get a vaccine, they make the choice to get the COVID-19 vaccine. And Abram, mm-hmm. just as a last last note thing too, because um, you mentioned earlier how you would like our news outlets um, and maybe even our SciCommerce to talk about uh, COVID vaccine a little differently. So what would you say to our you know, public facing folks who have the power and platform to talk about COVID-19 and the vaccine itself? 
I would focus more on the people and not the statistics. Certainly the statistics are interesting. Mm -hmm. Like I love looking at the statistics, but you know, it's great to say a thousand people got vaccinated, a million people got vaccinated prior to this individual getting vaccinated. But I think more powerful would be an image or a story of somebody who got vaccinated. You know, so mm -hmm. those narratives, those personal narratives of why somebody got vaccinated can be really key. And similarly, talking about the narratives of, of COVID-19 cases, like what was it like for them to get disease? What was their clinical presentation? How serious was it? I think those can be really key messages which could influence whether somebody would want to get uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. And I would like to add a footnote, in a non-exploitative way, please. In a, a non-ex, <laughs> yes. And I think that's, I think that's the, that's the hard way of thinking right. about it. Cause like you could do this all wrong, especially if you're thinking about like talking about certain groups of individuals. Um, but, but those, 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 those messages and those images can be really important for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was yeah, so informative you. and I learned so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And that's the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Abram Wagner, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach them at, and what are, what's your socials or where can people reach you? So my, my Twitter is just my name, Abram Wagner. You know, I'm an older millennial. It's it's <laughs> it's not a great Twitter feed. It's like the embodiment you know, of, what is that meme? It's like Steve Buscemi in like the high school being like, how do you do fellow high schoolers? That's that's very much what, that's very much how I talk on social media. But I would love for you to follow me. Um, yeah, so so feel free to reach out if any of you have any questions. If you have any questions for us, you can send us an email at globalcaveat at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. And thank you to everyone, our listeners and our supporters for helping this podcast run. Special thanks to Cordell Glass Pop Cupco for producing our music. Have a great end of the year, everyone. Or I guess, no, yeah. this is coming out in no. January. Yeah, right? we're recording now, but it comes out at oh. the beginning of January. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. Okay.